This is episode 175 of IDRA Class Notes. For many of these students, they're first-generation students. And not only do they not know how to navigate the way into college, but their families don't know either. And oftentimes that comes with a lot of pressure. When you bring together the students, the family, and the community, it can be a holistic process where everyone can partake and everyone can learn, and it will help make the transition a lot smoother. Hello and welcome to the IDRA Class Notes podcast. This is David Hinojosa, I'm the director of the IDRA Equity Assistance Center South. And with me today is Dr. Deshaun Preston, who is the Higher Education Research Fellow at the Southern Education Foundation. The Southern Education Foundation is partnering with IDRA to help deliver Equity Assistance Center services, technical assistance to school districts across the South under a grant funded by the Department of Education. So welcome, Deshaun, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Preston has authored an article titled Creating College Readiness for Students of Color and Immigrant Students uh, for the IDRA EAC South. And so within that article and even beyond, and we're going to be talking about uh, college readiness today, and maybe we can begin with the discussion about what schools and school leaders and parents should look out for as far as uh, barriers that might be preventing students of color and immigrant students from being college ready? Oh, sure. During my study, we came up with about five different reasons that, that actually might affect that. The first would be actually just the underfunding of school. The unfortunate truth is a lot of where students attend by zip code has an effect on what college they will attend or if they even will attend college. Um, and those schools tend to lack resources to help those students to get in the class. They oftentimes even lack the number of guidance counselors to kind of help them navigate through that process to get into school. And then there's also what some people know it as, as the prison to pipeline. That is a huge issue, a major barrier for students of color and immigrant students. Typically, African-American students, uh, Latino students, or basically any students of color are often suspended and expelled at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And of course, we know that missing class time is associated with, in many ways, how well a child will do in school or even finish school. The other issue would be the lack of exposure to rigorous courses. So oftentimes students of color and immigrant students are not highly represented in your IB and AP courses. And there are a number of studies, of course, um, college board has come out with a few and uh, a number of other research hubs have come out with a few showing that there's a strong correlation between students who take IB and AP courses and their success in college, and not only their success in college, but their success on the ACT and SAT, which ultimately, you know, the better you do, the more money you can get. I would also argue that another barrier would be the, the lack of culturally responsive pedagogy that exists 
within our school systems. Oftentimes, students of color and immigrants don't have the opportunity to learn about themselves. Their, their culture is not ingrained within the curriculum and many times causes them to be very disengaged of what is going on. And the last barrier that I would kind of speak of are just various policies and, I might argue, uh, tests that serve as barrier. There are various policies that often come up and about that negatively impact low-income students and students of color. And as far as testing is concerned, which is quite interesting, a lot of our state and graduation tests, which have also, from a statistical standpoint, have proven not to be great indicators of college success and or readiness, have also hindered many students from getting into college in particular colleges at that. So those yeah. were the five major barriers I've noticed. It does seem like an underlying current or a theme for all of these, you know, whether you're talking about lack of resources and opportunities in schools or school-to-prison pipeline issues and access to rigorous curriculum. One of the recurring themes seems to be that they're having, you know, a deficit-based framework of how they view communities. So maybe they don't need as many resources. Maybe they don't need exposure to certain uh, curriculum requirements. And so why should we invest in those children or in their education like we do for other children? Can you maybe talk a little bit about what are some of the asset-based strategies that schools can consider in helping to overcome some of these barriers? Sure. One thing I would definitely recommend is providing information often and early to students as much as you possibly can. And I'll add a caveat and I'll explain after I explain the information that should be provided. But also in providing the information, be sure to include families and the community. So it is important to provide information often and early because studies and research have shown that preparing for college actually starts at middle school. And oftentimes due to various circumstances within a number of the schools that, that these students of color and immigrant and low-income students typically attend, they're not offered the information or the opportunity to gain this information until later on into their high school career, um, typically around junior and senior year. But it is important that we begin to provide students with information of various types of colleges, career paths, majors that might interest them, how to finance these various things how to finance their education and things of that nature. But I think it's also important because for many of these students, they're first-generation students. And not only do they not know how to navigate the way into college, but their families don't know either. And oftentimes that comes with a lot of pressure. When you bring together the students, the family, and the community, it can be a holistic process where everyone can partake and everyone can learn, and it will help make the transition a lot smoother. Another thing that I would recommend is possibly early exposure. Oftentimes, college is not a reality for these students within their community. They don't know very many people who've gone to college. Uh, their family hasn't gone to college. So for many of them, college is not a realistic expectation. So by exposing them early and often to various college experience, you then begin to 
plant a seed, if you will, into the student's mind that college is a possibility and that they can succeed. Thirdly, I think it's important that schools hire faculty and staff that are committed to their students and seeing their students succeed as well as go into college. And by college, I'm not necessarily referring to a four-year research one institution. Sometimes it is simply as looking at a student and seeing the desire, but not only the desire, but the possibilities that the student has and kind of working and committing yourself to ensuring that these students can get into two-year college, uh, telling them about those possibilities, telling them about the possibilities of a four-year college and what can come of it. Because oftentimes, as I stated earlier, although these students aren't exposed to people within their community and their family haven't gone to college, their faculty and staff at these schools more than likely have attended college. So that is something that can help if faculty and staff are caring about these students. And then, as we spoke about in your first question, it would be eliminating exclusionary practices and improving campus climate. So that would be, you know, making sure that low-income students, students of color, immigrant students, have the ability to have access to IB courses and AB courses, but not only that, but improving the climate in their schools to make sure that students are welcome and they feel as though they can learn and people believe in them and they are being exposed to various things. I believe not only will those two practices help students decide to want to come to school and enjoy the learning process more, but it would kind of encourage them to further their education into college. Yeah, it's interesting. Many many of these strategies that you've suggested here and shared with the audience today are things that our Equity Assistance Center has actually tried in the field with school districts that might be subject to a school desegregation order because of disparities between students of color and majority white students in college readiness indicators and providing that information early on to students, you know, beginning in the lower grade levels, continuing through the junior high and going up into high schools, making sure that they remove those prerequisite barriers, course barriers that might not be relevant at all, de-emphasizing, you know, test scores, all of those different types of strategies have really shown great promise. Uh, We've had some districts that we've worked with in Louisiana, for example, uh, that have had over 200% increase from one year to the next just by seeing uh, families more as assets rather than deficits and really being intentional about this work. So is there any specific work that the Southern Education Foundation is currently doing to address college readiness if you want to share briefly with the audience? Sure. One of the main things that come to mind is earlier this year, the Southern Education released their first cohort of racial equity leaders. And this is a part of the racial equity leadership program that is here, where SEF brings together high-level education officials uh, across the South. And we go through various trainings and discussions to help provide these leaders with a more equitable lens in how they approach uh, their various school districts and counties and even in their states. 
So that is, you know, looking at data and disaggregating data to determine how well students of color are doing, determining how well our English language learners are doing. And, and not only that, but ensuring that there's also a pedagogy available for these students, looking at the expulsion rate and comparing them and so forth and so on, making sure that our school districts here in the South are equipped to handle equity issues. So that is one thing. And of course, this is our first cohort. Matter of fact, a convening of, of those 12 leaders are supposed to happen within a couple of weeks again, where they'll sit down and discuss various things they've learned and implemented and tried it within their school districts. And of course, everyone is able to feed off of one another. We're almost out of time, but I think that that's an excellent opportunity with the racial equity leadership network that you have there at the Southern Education Foundation, and we very much look forward to the progress and the positive outcomes that are undoubtedly going to come from your program there. Uh, Dr. Preston, again, I thank you very much for sharing all of your knowledge, your information, especially from the great equity perspective and lens that the Southern Education Foundation brings. And we look forward to continuing our partnership with you as we move the IDRA EAC Southward forwards. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.